Bible this morning, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. So what we'll do is I'll, I'll read our sermon text this morning, which is really a single verse with a little bit of the next verse tacked on, open in prayer, and then Lord willing, um, God will use me to teach us from God's word today. So the sermon text today, the verse today, is Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, which says this, When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Let's pray. Father, you have promised to be amongst us when we gather as one body. <laughs> and we call that promise today that you are here and opening our hearts, our ears, our eyes uh, to see the truth of your word. I pray that you use this morning to teach us, to grow us uh, in our understanding of you, in our love of you, and teach us to rely on the promises you have given to us. Teach us to cling to it so that whatever comes our way in this life, by comparison, the things you've promised us, it means nothing. We can look forward. We can look to all that will be healed and set right and not dwell on what is at the moment. So I pray this morning you use me, use your word that you have left for us to teach us these things. I pray that you are with me as I, I speak and attempt to articulate the truths found in this passage. So be with us this morning, Lord. Let your glory shine forth. Let us understand you well and let it move us to doxology to praise. I pray these things in your son's name. So exactly two years ago, this month of July, I spent the entire month, 33 days to be exact, in the hospital, on a bed, strapped to oxygen. And it was a tough time, and it was a hard time. It was the height of COVID, and um, family and friends were unable to come in and see me. And so I was stuck in a bed, <laughs> stuck with tubes on my face that were so loud I could barely hear when the doctors came in with their own Darth Vader-like masks, giving me their doom and gloom <laughs> about what will happen to me. Their prognosis tended to be something like, <laughs> you may never leave this hospital. You may never be off oxygen again. They would even come in and beg me to put myself on a ventilator. And though my mind was fogged, <laughs> looking back on it, and I could barely think properly, I knew, I knew I did not want that to happen. <clears throat> well, eventually along the way, perhaps at the right time through God's providence, as the initial kind of fog in my mind began to lift, <laughs> I was still able to talk with my wife Lacey through the phone, and she began to counsel me with things like, 
you know, turn off that TV. Because you know in the hospital they have this TV that's running, and all you can do, it's so boring in there, is watch endless episodes of really dumb sitcoms. Right? But you can to counsel me and say, turn that off. <laughs> Listen to uh, good Christian music. Read your Bible um, and study the Word. And so I did that. I shut that off and never turned the TV on again and began to dwell on these things, began to listen to uh, the words like we have be- had behind us in a, minute, uh, a little bit ago in song. And I began to read and study again, and the fog began to lift. Well, after a little while, one night where I was laying in my bed, and you know how when you're in the hospital, the nurses come in and tell you that you need to sleep, but then interrupt you every 30 minutes. Well, one night, real late at night, one of the teams that, they had a whole team that would deal with the oxygen, and they would mess with it and add water bags to it and different things with that. So one night, there was a guy that came in maybe two or three nights in a row. And he saw, at the time, I was in seminary, and Lacey had brought some seminary books with me, and I had laying on, laying on my, my little table, and I had probably, I think some, probably like something like Sovereign Grace playing over my phone real loudly. So he began to converse with me and began asking me things uh, about my faith, which was difficult for me because <laughs> any of y'all that know me who ask me a theological question, um, you're, it's going to be hard for you to walk away from me because I'm going to be talking and talking. Right? I see that on Lacey's eyes all the time. She asks me a question about something, and then five minutes later she's like, I just wanted a simple answer. <laughs> but... What, what uh, the sickness was doing to me, it was damaging my lungs to the point where it could barely operate. And so speaking was very difficult for me. <laughs> um, and even when I could speak, it would only be a little bit before I would cough a fit and maybe nurses would run in and see what was the matter. Uh, but anyways, he would, he would come and talk to me a little bit and even pray with me. And one of the things he did is he asked me, hey man, what, if you had a favorite verse in the Bible, what would it be? And the first thing that popped in my head and what I told him was Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And his reaction is probably a lot like a lot of yours when I just read that verse. What? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? But he played it off. He's like, oh, yeah, that's cool, man. And unfortunately, because I was unable to speak very well, I could not explain really what was behind all that. Um, and so today is going to be my attempt to do that. Because it's a strange verse, and without the context behind it, without the um, cultural fill that's behind Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, it might be something that you might easily miss. There's a lot of other amazing things that happen, famous things that happen in the chapter of 15 of Genesis. Right? We have the imagery of the stars in the sky. We have the famous verse that Paul goes back to um, that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we often miss this strange little verse that has no bearing, seemingly, on what our culture understands today. But in the hospital, you know, it was the theology behind this verse <laughs> that gave security, assurance, trust, a deeper faith and reliance on the God that has healed my soul. Now, I believe the body is important, too, 
but I believe that there's a very good reason Jesus once said, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So it follows that if he can heal my soul, then whatever, it ha- whatever happens now to me, in the end, he will one day heal my body. So God had prepared me to suffer faithfully by leading my life in a way that I would learn to build a theology of suffering upon his word and who God is. And one of the backbones to that theology is Genesis 15, verse 17. It's one of those verses that have deeply impacted my understanding of the glorious nature of God and how I can, in times of trials, reach into my pocket and pluck the key of promise that it will cling to even when all appears doom and gloom, even when we are in despair. Today I hope to give you a glimpse of what God teaches his people with this one verse. In order to do that, however, I need to do something. I need to fill in some pieces that many of us in our modern day miss in this verse. Part of the reason why I think this verse is one of the most significant verses in the Bible is because of this archaic concept that once had a profound, deep, widespread meaning in the culture of God's people. But we no longer really do life laced with this important biblical concept. So I want to spend some time in order to fill in the meaning behind Genesis 15, 17, filling this concept in for us. And what is this concept? This is the concept of covenant. So let's define covenant. The word covenant can be a difficult word to define. A great theologian who my youngest child is named after, John Owen, spoke of the difficulty of a simple static definition of the word covenant. And he said this, for the word covenant is used in great variety and what is intended by it must be learned from the subject matter treated of. I agree with Owen on this assessment because the word covenant is a little like trying to define the word mother. I can give a a basic beginning answer that starts us on the definition, right? Um, A mother is a woman who 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 is bearing or born a child. But as you can see, that doesn't really quite fit it. It doesn't do it all justice. A mother is so much more than that beginning definition. It is something, rather, that is filled in by our experience and culture. It is infused with deep meaning that is difficult to wholly explain, even in a paragraph. And that definition I just gave on mother doesn't explain why, when I was a boy, your mama jokes were the worst insult you could give to another kid. So what we'll do now is, kind of like mother... I hope to give us a beginning definition of the word covenant. And then the short amount of time we have this morning, attempt to, as concisely as possible, which isn't my strong suit, fill in our experience with the term using a couple stories from God's word. So let's begin. Let's define covenant. What is covenant? A simple beginning definition is this. An agreement between two parties that specifies requirements for at least one party and includes blessings and curses 
for obedience or failure. Unlike mother, covenant has so many layers and is so deeply ingrained and woven into the ancient Middle Eastern culture that at times even the Bible itself takes for granted that the hearing, the listening audience of God's word um, would just understood, just understood in their head what they were reading. So in order to begin to fill in this definition of covenant, we're going to look at a couple of biblical passages that illustrate the weight behind the idea of covenant and fill in this definition like our experiences of mother have filled in the definition of mother. So first we're going to look at another part of Genesis, in Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, we learn that a covenant often doesn't initiate a relationship, but it secures it. A covenant secures a relationship. In Genesis 21, we find Abraham is still living nomadically throughout the land. Um, And just prior to Sarah getting pregnant with Isaac, Abraham comes across King Abimelech. And King Abimelech, much like Pharaoh did, sees Sarah and takes her as his wife because Abraham and Sarah have told everyone that they're merely brother and sister. And so Abimelech sees Sarah, takes her as his wife, and claims her as his. And so eventually God steps in, and he goes to Abimelech, and he says, look, you took Abraham's wife, and he is one of my prophets. You better give her back and back off, because he's mine, and you're going to have to suffer if you don't do this. So Abimelech immediately runs over to Abraham, is upset, and gives back Sarah, and said, why why are you doing this thing to me? Um... And Abimelech, understandably, doesn't want to be in the crosshairs of God, and he gives Sarah back without touching her um, and lets Abram on his way. Well, shortly after Isaac Isaac does get birth, Abimelech again approaches Abraham. And Abimelech is presumably still quite concerned to be on God's good side and therefore Abraham's side. Because Abraham's still wandering around the lands that Abimelech is over and He wants to make sure this relationship goes forward well and he doesn't um, provoke the wrath of God again. So he goes to Abraham and basically says, Hey, Abraham, you remember that time where you lied to me and I thought Sarah was just your sister, so I took her as a wife, but I didn't touch her. And as soon as I found out, I gave her back to you. No harm done, right? Abraham says yes. And he says, Well, how about we solidify that, that kind relationship that we've had, this good relationship, and we, we make this a thing going forward. Will you make a covenant with me? And so after a quick negotiation over a well that Abraham dug, they secure the relationship with a covenant. So if you happen to have been turned into chapter 21, in verse 27 it says, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And then now in verse 31, therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. See, Abimelech and Abraham already had a relationship. They'd already encountered each other and even done business together. 
But Abimelech, rightly fearing Abraham's God, knew it best to secure that relationship. And he thought it best to be assured that he would not be put in a situation again that might invoke the wrath of God. For the ancient peoples, when two parties needed to be sure of the relationship, the greatest thing they could do was secure it with a covenant. And for the ancient Near East, a covenant was of deep importance. But covenant isn't something that just is deeply ingrained to the culture of humankind and isn't just significant to humans. In fact, God himself places immense significance, significant weight on the taking and keeping of covenants. God is someone who himself honors covenants. One of the instances when we see just how much weight God places in covenants is that of the covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites. Perhaps you remember this story, often known as the Gibeonite deception. Way back before Israel was to enter the land and take it for themselves, they were wandering the desert. And while they're wandering the desert, God was prepping them to uh, take the land and conquer it and wipe out all the people. And so one of the instructions he gave to the people was in Exodus 23, verse 32, he tells the people, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. So the people in the land of Canaan were to be wiped out completely. They weren't supposed to make any kind of treaty, agreement, nothing with these people. And so it became illegal to do such a thing. Well, the time came to enter the land, and Joshua began leading his expedition into the land of Canaan and began conquering city after city to where some of the peoples in Canaan began to realize, uh-oh, we need to do something. So in Joshua chapter 9, we meet the Gibeonites, who were people in Canaan who saw this happening and thought, the best thing we can do is make a covenant agreement with the Israelites to keep us from being killed off. And so what they did is they came up with a plan. And the plan was this. They got the rattiest, dirtiest, beat-up clothes that they could, and they dressed themselves in it. And they made everyone look uh, dehydrated and sick, and they got days-old bread and put it in their packs, and they set on their way, and they traveled to meet Israel. And with their, their guys that they put on, they came up to Israel and said, hey, well, we heard about you guys. We're, from, we're, from, we're not from around here. We're from a far-off land. Would you please uh, let us kind of hang out with you guys and you can protect us um, from these horrible Canaanites that are around? And so the people of Israel were tricked. They had no idea. And so they said, oh, that sounds good. Let's make a covenant with you. So in Joshua chapter 9, verse 16, we read this. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities. And on the third day, on the third day, now their cities were Gibeon, Sephira, Beeroth, and Kirath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the, all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we have sworn to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and jaws of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So notice what happened. God said, It's illegal for you to make a covenant with anybody in the land. So Israel goes in and they make a covenant with somebody in the land. Unwittingly, but they made one. So you might think, Okay, Israel did something they weren't supposed to, illegal. They, did, they were tricked into it, in fact. Therefore, they would have a right to forego that and not honor that covenant, right? Just perhaps today, we might have a contract that we might have been tricked into. We might be able to find some loopholes to escape that. But the people of Israel knew they could not do that thing, and so they kept the covenant anyhow, even though it was illegal. But here's the kicker we're going to find that actually God honored that covenant as well. Even though it was against his word, against his command, God is still going to make Israel adhere to this covenant. So we're going to fast forward 400 years. Israel's now in the land. They've conquered it. They've set up a kingdom. And David has been finally achieved the throne. <clears throat> and something strange happens. Suddenly, there, a famine starts for about three years, and no one knows why. But we read this in 2 Samuel, verse 20, uh, 2 Samuel 21, chapter 21. At the beginning, it says this, Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel. So even, even the scriptures themselves have to remind the people of Israel who the world the Gibeonites were of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that ye may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord of Gibeah of Saul." the chosen of the Lord, and the king, David, said, I will give them to him. Notice what happens here. They made an illegal covenant, but God held them to that anyways. Right? It was 400 years later. Everyone had forgotten about who the Gibeonites even were, but Saul had began breaking that covenant that they made 400 years ago, and God held them to account. God gives weight to and honors even our unwitting covenants. So now we've seen a little bit about the broader biblical context of Genesis 17, 15, 17 through the lens of covenant. We'll now kind of zoom in a little narrower to the immediate passage 
context of, of this immediate passage of this verse. There will still be a sense that looking at the passage that this verse is contained will still be a deeper uh, look at what covenant means, what its definition is. But we will now focus on one aspect of what the covenant entails. We're going to look at what the covenant, what is often one of the central purposes of a covenant. One of the central purposes of a covenant is what we've been singing this morning, assurance. We really actually touched on this earlier when we talked about how a covenant often secures a relationship, but often a covenant can be centered around the purpose of being something the greater party within the covenant can use to assure the lesser party what is being promised will most assuredly come to pass. So now let's look at this idea of covenantal assurance. God often uses a covenant or aspects of a covenant to assure his people. It provides something tangible or visible that people can witness and return again whenever they are in need of a reassurance that what he has promised will in fact come to be. So for instance, Christian, you and I are in a covenant with God now, the new covenant. And in that covenant, God has given us some tools, some things that are in large part meant to reassure us that the promise God made in the new covenant will and have happened. For example, the Lord's Supper. It's a new covenant sign, and it's something we can see, touch, taste, that reminds us of not only the great promises God gives us in the person and work of Christ, but that God wholly commits himself to the promises by going the extra mile and binding himself in the covenant, of which he will not and cannot break. So in Genesis 15, we see God give this kind of assurance to Abraham. So we're looking at the broader passage of Genesis chapter 15. Notice in the beginning of chapter 15, God comes to Abraham twice, reminding Abraham of his promises. Verse 1 tells us, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then down in verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now notice what Abram's response here is in verse 2 and 8. Verse 2, but Abraham said, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And verse 8, but he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So Abraham's response here essentially is, look, God, my wife Sarah and I are old as dirt. And we have wealth beyond measure. We have everything that we could ever want or need except for the very promises that you initially told us about. I don't have an heir. I don't have a giant family. And I don't possess the land. So what else could you offer me? What else could you give me? So what is it that Abraham is seeking here in this interaction, in these questions? I think he's seeking assurance. From a human perspective, it it does not look like the promises of Genesis chapter 12 can possibly come to pass. It's too far-fetched. Abraham is too old. He's without an heir. The only one who 
is an heir for him is, is, someone, is, a, is a slave. Is, he doesn't have a bloodline. If he doesn't have a bloodline now, when he's very, very old, how can he possibly imagine, conceive of, owning all this land that's before him and having kingdoms established from his line? Notice, too, that Abraham's second interaction with God comes after the famous verse that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, which is verse 6. So these questions aren't necessarily that Abraham is asking for this in faithlessness. Rather, he seems to be looking for something that will reassure Abraham in times of need, something he can, he can cling to and remember and point to and touch and see that will assure his heart that his belief is not in vain, but has been secured, is certain. It's telling that God does not rebuke Abraham here. <clears throat> Instead, God knows exactly what to do to give Abraham full assurance that's even greater than the picture at the beginning of chapter 15 of the symbol of the stars in the sky tolling the number of Abraham's offspring. <clears throat> and so we see down in verse 8, the second time God has approached Abraham, Abraham's response is, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I'm old. I have no family, no people to possess this land. How can I be certain? How can I be sure? Reassure me, reassure me God. So God immediately begins the work of graciously assuring Abraham that he will, with absolute certainty, receive these promises of God. Look down at verse 9. <clears throat> God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three, three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Adam drove them away. That's God's response to the question, how do, how do I know? And that seems odd to us. Again, it goes back to our culture does not experience these things anymore. So let's add a little help to this. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 34. I wish I could spend more time in Jeremiah 34, but time permits that I, I show us a little glimpse of what's going on here through it. And it's going to help us point to what's going on here. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. We read this. And the man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf and I will give them into the land, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. <laughs> so what we're seeing here is the aftermath and the cursing of a covenant that was made between God and the people. People had made a covenant, and the way it seemed that they made the covenant based on these, on these passages here was that they cut animals in half, and the people who led the people, the officials, passed through those pieces. 
when they passed through those pieces, they ratified the covenant before God. And in ratifying that covenant, they were saying, as we pass through these pieces, we claim that if we do not keep the terms of our agreement, may we be like these animals cut in two. And that's exactly what God says he will do and does when the people end up breaking this covenant. So we learn here that the covenant-making ceremony often transpired this way. Animals would be cut in half and separated into a runway that the parties entering into the covenant would walk through so as to ratify the covenant. We see this exact scenario play out in the ancient world in many texts that we still have today. And Abraham and all the boys and girls who would be reading this book for the first time in ancient Israel and wandering around the desert would have instantly known what it was that God was having him prepare for. It's sort of like being at the car dealership and you have told the car salesman that you're ready to take a car and they bring you back to an office and hand you a pin. You immediately know that your hand's about to get really tired. So Abraham knew exactly what he was about to be doing. Abraham would have known that he was to soon, like those officials in Jeremiah 34 who passed between those pieces and entered into the covenant with God, and he would do the same. Except God does something amazing. And it would have been shocking to every boy and girl hearing the book of Moses read in the desert for the first time. God is going to ratify this covenant with Father Abraham, but he's going to do it in a most unexpected way. Before we see what that is, let me drive home that the motive behind initiating a covenant is assurance. Let's look down now at verse, verses 12 through 16. It says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. So Abraham separated his pieces and he's waiting. The sun goes down, deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Armorites is not yet complete. Notice, after God gives the instructions to start the covenant-making ceremony, the next words are, Abraham, be assured, know for certain. How does God give him the certainty of knowledge that his promise will come through? He begins to ratify a covenant. So now let's look at how God ratifies this covenant and how he does this ratification in a very unexpected way. Let's look now at our main verse, verse 17 of chapter 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, 
the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Remember Jeremiah 34 that we just read? When the people made a covenant with God, it was they who passed through these pieces. And as I said before, the reason why they passed through these pieces is because the oath that they were taking was self-maledictory, meaning they're calling a curse upon themselves should they break the covenant. And so often, usually, the expectation is that the lesser party would be the one taking this oath against the greater party. You certainly did not see something like that happen in the literature when gods made covenants with people. Gods would never make covenants in this way. And so you have something amazingly surprising happen here. So we saw those people pass through those pieces, and when they broke the covenant, God punished them exactly as their oath said. I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and beasts of the earth. Abraham's expectation, and every boy and girl reading for the first time, wandering in the desert, the book of Moses, would have expected Abraham to pass through those pieces. I think it would have been satisfactory for Abraham. He would have gotten his assurance. He would have his covenant. He would have what he wanted. But it isn't what happened. Read again, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now hopefully this immediately comes, brings to mind and reminds you of things like the bush that burned but wasn't consumed, the smoke and fire surrounding the summit of Mount Sinai or the pillar of smoke and fire that led the Israelites through the desert. This is God who passes between these pieces. God who proclaims a curse upon himself. And he proclaims this curse upon himself that the promises made to Abraham do not come to pass. I think R.C. Sproul explained this verse much better than I have, and so I want to use him to really drive home what is going on here with verse 17. So I'm going to use the words of the late R.C. Sproul who spoke this verse, about this verse, uh, Genesis 15, 17, at a conference. He said this, I've always said if I was in jail solitary confinement, and could only have one book. The book would, I would want would be the Bible. If I could have only one book of the Bible with me in prison, the book I would choose is Hebrews. People are usually surprised to hear me say that. They assume I'm going to say Romans, but I say I already got that. <laughs> I don't need to have a copy of it. <clears throat> but there's so much in Hebrews that develops both the Old and New Testament and brings it together that that's what I would like to have in my cell. But, if I could have only one verse, he says, I would have the verse, the smoking torch and burning furnace, moving through the pieces. Why? Because in this drama, the ultimate theophany of God as he manifests himself is fire, the pillar of smoke, the burning bush, the consuming 
flame. This is God moving through the pieces. This is God entering into covenant with his creatures. And as the author of Hebrews said, because God could swear by nothing higher, he swore by himself. Because graphically, he says, dramatically, symbolically, what God is doing for Abram, Abraham, when Abraham says, how can I know for sure you're going to do it? God runs the gauntlet. God goes between these pieces, and he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, if I ever break my word to you, may I be torn asunder, just as you, just as you have torn asunder the parts of these animals. May the immortal become mortal. The immutable have a mutation. May the eternal stop living. Abraham, I can swear on my mother's grave. I can't swear on my mother's grave. I can't swear by the stars or the moon. These are all part of the created order. The highest promise I can give to you is I swear by myself, by my own deity, my very being, that before I would lie to you, I would give up my own divine essence. So there's a sense where I could have just read that and been over with. But I pray that I've been I pray that I have been used by God to articulate just some of what this verse in Genesis 15, 17 proclaims. I pray that it leads us to doxology. Anytime for the rest of our lives we read Genesis chapter 15. And I love to teach theology. My strength is most assuredly not in application. Now, I believe theology implies application, but for whatever reason, I tend not to, to be all that good in articulating the application of theology I teach. So to help myself this morning, I simply want to give you one point of application instead of trying to do more. There are many, I think, many applications and many things that we should lead from this, but here's one. In times of suffering, trial, despair, whatever, remember that God has made a covenant with you. God would again make a self-maledictory oath with his people when Jesus Christ ratified the new covenant on the cross. And in the new covenant, God promises that whatever happens to you in this life, he has made you his child, forgiven your sins, given you his righteousness, and healed your soul. And one day, he will heal your body. It is assured. He has given us the gracious assurance of a covenant promise. We are meant to dwell on that promise, cling to it, use it to free ourselves from any predicament in which it appears there is no hope. This reminds me of a scene from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The hero, if you call him that, Christian, has been traveling the king's road on his way to the celestial city. He has become a follower of the king. And throughout his adventures, he's had many ups and downs. But Bunyan comes to a point where he, he writes a story that Christian and his companion at the time, Hopeful, fall into the worst time of their life 
when along the path that they were taken, it became a little difficult for them to walk, and so they saw just to the side a little path that was much nicer to walk on. And that little path appeared, at least in their eyes, to be going the same direction as the road, the way. And so Christian talked hopeful into taking that path for a little bit because it was easier to walk on and it went the same way so they could just hop back over the fence once it separated. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> that's not what happened and they couldn't get back and they became tired. And unbeknownst to them, they took a rest in a field that was owned by giant despair. And giant despair comes across them and he sees them and he ushers them back into his castle known as Doubting Castle. And there in Doubting Castle, giant despair locks them in a dungeon and spends each day beating them almost to death. And he puts them in utter darkness, bruised and bleeding and not having much energy to barely even converse with each other. And he treats them horribly, and he even takes them and shows them uh, other pilgrims who Doubting Castle, who uh, Giant Despair has taken, and he shows them the bones of the pilgrims he has killed. And he puts in their cell some things uh, in there for which they could end it all. And he bids them, I'm just going to kill you eventually, and you're going to suffer here, so why don't you go ahead and end it all? And Christian and Hopeful even get to the point of such despair and loneliness and darkness that they entertain the idea. They see themselves as stuck here with no way out. They're locked in the cell held by a giant. But in the end, Hopeful counsels that they should rely on Christ. They should rely on the king who has helped them before. Well, this has happened for a few days, and giant despair has gotten to the point where his wife has talked him into, basically, he's just going to end it, and he's going to have them killed. And so he's going to do it the next day, and so giant despair goes to bed that night, and Christian and Hopeful, barely able to move or speak, they've been starved, they have nothing to eat, they've been beaten, and they're, they're contemplating what is to come. And suddenly, a thought comes to Christian. Let me read what John Bunyan writes about this part. He says, Well, on Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out into his passionate speech, What a fool am I! thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I'm persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, this is good news, good news, brother. Pluck it out of the bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too, but that lock went desperately hard, yet the key did open it. 
They then thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it waked giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail, for fits took him again, so that he could by no means go after them. Then they went on and came to the king's highway, and so were safe, because they were out of his jurisdiction. Soon after my wife Lacey's counsel, while I was trapped in that hospital bed for 33 days, and my mind began to refocus and contemplate the things of God and the theology behind uh, things like Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, which was a verse I relied on. Similar to Christian, as the fog began lifting, a sudden thought popped into my head. It was a thought that would serve to help me to accept God's wisdom in allowing me to get uh, so sick and fall into despair. The thought was, according to God's promise, he made in my Savior Jesus Christ, this suffering, this momentary affliction, is the closest to hell I will ever be. The great physician has promised healing and even if I were be bedridden and strapped to oxygen for the rest of my life, what is that next to the eternal glories to come? God's promise of this will come true. It is sure. He swore by himself. He made a covenant with me. And to break it, he would have to cease being God. And that cannot be done. I may be suffering now, but God will cause it to cease. And that is the gift promise. Let's pray. Father,